We'll continue in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But actually, why don't you open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you would, 2 Corinthians 2. So I approach this text with fear and and trembling, as I often do. Uh, There are two things that um, happened since God called me to Meadow Creek, Um, and both of them I don't think were unexpected, but the the power of the work was, for me, uh, surprising. First, he's just given me a love for each and every one of you, something that I didn't realize uh, I had a capacity for. Uh, and that's a gift from God. I'm not that loving. And, but I love these people. I love this flock um, with all my heart. But the second thing that was surprising was that uh, the Word of God itself began... I've studied God's Word my whole life. Uh, I've loved His Word. But as I began to preach, uh, a great weight uh, came upon me, a great fear um, to speak the words of God with the power of God um, by the Holy Spirit. Well, the reason I mention this is because Paul talks about these things from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 through uh, chapter 6. He's kind of diverging from the point of the letter to talk about gospel ministry. He talks about his own ministry and implies that to all other ministers of the gospel in every church. Um, This is historically the way the text has been viewed throughout since the New Testament was written, uh, that this, this particular passage is very um, eloquent and apt and sweet description of gospel ministry. So I'd like just before we go into, as chapter 5 and chapter 6 are kind of the close of this part of the message, it's the close of this theme of gospel ministry, let's just walk back through chapters 2 through 6 very quickly. Um, If you look at chapter 2, Paul begins his excursion talking about gospel ministry. Um, He mentions that really throughout this whole section, he's discussing the glories and the hardships of gospel ministry. That the treasure that he has within him has been placed inside just a broken and weak vessel, a jar of clay, he calls it. Um, He serves the king, the master, the covenant maker, and all gospel, gospel ministers are the same. We serve the master. Uh, despite hardships that may come, we have a single-minded devotion to God's work. This is Paul's emphasis. No matter what the church in Corinth did, he was committed to do the work of God that God had given him because of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he describes this particular work as a triumphal procession. Uh, verses 12 through the end, he says that uh, he's, his ministry and his preaching is either a fragrant aroma of life to those being saved, or it's a, an aroma of death to those who are perishing. In chapter 3, he goes into 
the new covenant that God had given him to minister. All gospel ministers minister the new covenant promises uh, fulfilled in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is our confidence. It comes from Christ. He says that he's not sufficient in himself to do the work at all. But this glorious ministry is more glorious than even the ministry Moses had. So this makes ministers bold and gives them confidence because it's Christ who empowers them to do the work. Because the work is God's, we know that he's transforming us. He says in the very last verse of chapter 3, transforming us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, as God sanctifies us, he's making us more efficient, more holy, more godly for his service. Of course, many of the things he writes of gospel ministry hold true to all Christians, don't they? So you can see uh, the application very clearly. So in chapter 4, he uh, famously talks about these earthen vessels, these jars of clay, the ministers of the gospel, holding amazing treasure. And he says all this is from God, so we don't lose heart. We don't need to use shameful or underhanded ways. We just proclaim Jesus Christ. And we're confident of success in this ministry because we're not doing the work. The Holy Spirit's doing the work. So Paul is not discouraged. He continues and he glories that God uses jars of clay, just like him, to dispense this gospel treasure. He says that he's a slave for his church. All gospel ministers should view themselves as slaves of Jesus and slaves of their people. And this shows that the power belongs to God and not to the minister at all. He concludes in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4 that faithful ministers will probably suffer greatly for Christ if they're faithful. But this actually brings life to the church. So you want to see me broken. Don't pray for it, but you want to see me broken. Um, It's coming anyway. These light and momentary afflictions are compared to the eternal weight of glory, and that means they're very light and momentary indeed. And then finally in chapter 5, he talks about the ministry of reconciliation that God has given all gospel ministers. Even death is a joy for a gospel minister who served faithfully because he knows he's going to be with his father. So this gives you good courage um, knowing that you can't even fail in death. Whether in death or life, it's our aim to please Jesus because we're all going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ. So this also gives us a sense of fear when we approach the preaching of the word and the ministry of the gospel. And the fear of God, combined with the courage that we have, knowing our inheritance is real, makes gospel ministers effective by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says the love of Christ controls us. So we serve the body of Christ. And the work of the Holy Spirit is glorious indeed. Last week, we finished chapter 5 by discussing how when God saves someone, it's a new creation. It's all of God. He does the work, not the minister. He makes a new creation, and this saving work is completely from God through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. But for His grace and His glory, He uses frail men, just like me, human agents, to bring about this reconciliation with God. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through chapter 6, verse 2. 
5.17 through 6, verse 2. And I'd ask you to please stand for the reading of this holy scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our good God in heaven, we are your humble sheep. We come to you as those who need help. We need assistance. And we are confident that you hear this prayer. Why would you not hear this prayer to open eyes, to unstop ears, to soften hearts? Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer in Jesus name. Amen. Christ ambassadors is the title of the sermon. We're going to look at three things. First, that the almighty God uses men, frail, weak, broken men to dispense gospel treasure. Secondly, that God's appeal comes from men with his authority. And thirdly, that this is a glorious and also a fearful duty. So God's gospel ministers are described by Paul here as Christ's ambassadors. It's an interesting, interesting metaphor he uses, Christ's ambassadors. 17th century Puritan Presbyterian pastor John Flavel said, The preaching of the gospel by Christ's ambassadors is the means appointed for the reconciling and bringing home of sinners to Christ. So Christ's ambassadors, uh, Paul would say, and Flavel would agree, have a mission. And that's to work the gospel of Jesus Christ into the hearts of the people that would hear, faithfully preaching, faithfully and fearlessly teaching the word of God. When we were stationed in Portugal, I was honored to actually host the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Portugal, as he came to our little island. Um, And as I drove him around and spent two or three days with him, I actually became friends. And it was weird that I know a U.S. ambassador. Um, He even invited us to stay at the ambassador's residence in Lisbon. It was a wonderful experience, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, But more importantly, I got to see his work, the work of an ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Portugal, kind of from the other side of the curtain, kind of the inside story. Uh, So as I was preparing for the sermon, I reached out to him and just floated a few things by him. I 
I'm an ambassador for Christ, and I wondered if there were parallels um, to his ambassadorship to Portugal. Well, he sent me pictures of the written guidance that were given to him by the President of the United States. He had a clear mission statement, a clear guidance, and he had a leader whom he knew and respected and trusted. But here's what he wrote to me. What I would say is the job of an earthly ambassador is to advance the interests of his or her country in accordance with the principles and values set forth by the country's leader. It's important that the ambassador not only be true to those values and principles, but be able to communicate them cogently and understandably. An important skill for carrying out ambassadorial duties is to be able to listen and empathize with the needs and challenges of those he or she is seeking to engage with. Only by truly understanding that the ambassador, only by truly understanding that can the ambassador serve as an effective representative of a higher authority. And he went on to tell me that he thought the parallels were very clear. He doesn't know much about my duties, but he sees that they could probably be parallel in scope. So when Paul wrote this, it just struck me, the job of an ambassador hasn't really changed that much. To represent your king and country's interests to the best of your abilities to a foreign people, to empathize with those, with those to whom you serve, and to be true to the values that you proclaim in thought, word, and deed. As Christ's ambassadors, ministers all over the world are united. We have a clear statement of our mission We have clear guidance. The message is clear. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our message. The method, gospel preaching, love for the body of Christ. Transparent living so that they see my own growth and the minister's own growth in godliness. And the means, imploring, persuading, declaring. So in verse 18, we see that All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, Paul and the ministers, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. This is amazing. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing truth. Why? Why would God make his appeal through any man? Why not just do the work himself without going through any man? Why does God use weak vessels, jars of clay? This is extraordinary to consider. He entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. Those words cause me to tremble. Isn't it amazing that the Almighty God would use mere men, earthen vessels, to bring salvation to the world? Well, we see this is the way he's always worked through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. Look at the apostles themselves. These men appear very weak in the world's eyes. Again, they appear before The day of Pentecost, they appear like they could not do anything for the Lord. 
But by the power of the Holy Spirit, 12 men changed the entire world. And we still feel the effects of it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God used those weak men as faithful gospel messengers. And God transformed them into men that were like Jesus. They were Christians, little Christs, humble in spirit, with strength of conviction. But the work was so obviously from God, it can't be denied. You cannot look at the Gospels and then read Acts and think that these men just kind of grew up. This is God's work. God alone reigns. God governs His church through His Word alone. But He uses men, visible men, men present with us with authority to proclaim His Word. The minister is like a tool in the hand of God. I've been watching uh, Casey transform our house. Our floor had been messed up and he's replacing the floor. And there's so much detailed, fine carpentry work that goes into uh, around the walls. The floor work has to be perfect. And he has more tools than I know what to do with. He's got a tool for everything. And he uses each tool perfectly to make whatever cut he needs to cut to do whatever demo or removal needs to happen, he's got a tool for it. Well, God uses faithful ministers like tools in his hand. And I would say even unfaithful ministers are used by God as a tool in his hand. He doesn't need to use men, so why does he? Why would he, why would he use men? Why not just transform people's hearts? They read the Bible and they go, Oh, this is all true, and God saves them immediately. Certainly God can do whatever He wants, and maybe this happens. But more often than not, He uses men as ministers of reconciliation. Why? Why would He entrust these, these, this glorious treasure to men? Why would He entrust it to Paul and to all further ministers? Calvin gives us three reasons. First of all, Calvin said it's because he loves the church. He loves his people. He condescends to give us human ambassadors to interpret his word and to represent his person, someone that you can touch and feel and see and listen to and hear. He desires the church to grow in knowledge and maturity, and such is his love that he not only gives us his word, he gives us someone to proclaim his word. And if he spoke from heaven, certainly we would all listen. If we were like, the church was like the shepherds in the field and hearing the angels sing God's praise and if God spoke to to us like that, certainly we would listen. But we would be terrified. We'd be terrified by the power and the might of God. And God sends us regular people, regular people to speak his words so that we might receive it. Calvin writes, When a puny man, risen from the dust, speaks in God's name, at this point we best evidence our piety and obedience toward God if we show ourselves teachable towards his minister, although he excels us in nothing. It was for this reason, then, that he hid the treasure of heavenly wisdom in weak and earthen vessels in order to prove more surely how much we should esteem it. 
You see what Calvin's saying? Because such amazing messages of God's word and providence are, are preached to you from a weak person like me or any other minister, it causes you to value that word even more greatly because you know in your heart that I'm just like you. But it's because of God's great love for us that he does this. Secondly, Calvin said, it brings unity in the church. Mutual love is fostered by the knowledge that God has cared enough for the local church to send his ambassador to us to teach. I know in Portugal, in every country where we send an ambassador, that country feels value. If you're a small country, if you're a city-state, you want a U.S. ambassador and an embassy in your country because then there's value to your country. And when the U.S. embassy is emptied and we leave a country, that country is devalued. In the same way, God sends an ambassador to bring unity, to show value, and to teach. Calvin writes, this is a knot of unity, each submitting to each other and hearing the preached word from one like themselves. The human ministry is the chief sinew by which believers are held together in one body. So why would God care about unity? Because the enemy cares about disunity. The enemy cares about destruction of the church. 2 Corinthians is all about the effects of the attacks of the enemy and how Paul, as a minister of the Gospels and as an ambassador, he says he's going to take it all on himself, whatever the enemy throws, so that the church might have peace and grow. And of course, this is the attitude of every faithful minister of God. How does the enemy try to undermine the unity of Christ? We see it in 2 Corinthians. We see it in 1 Corinthians. We see it in most of Paul's letters. Fault-finding, grumbling, complaining. Being offended when the word offends or pricks your soul. And all of this to the undoing and the ruin and the destruction of the church. And those who resent or reject the word of God because it comes from a human agent, Calvin says, are spitting in the face of God who ordained the preaching and the preacher. Of course, they did this to Jesus too. Isn't this, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother with us and his brothers and sisters? Aren't they with us? And they resented him. And yet, his love, his desire for unity in the church is overwhelmed by his own glory. He uses ambassadors, ministers of the gospel for his own glory. Again, I'll quote Calvin. He says, Pastors are commended the dignity of ministry by all possible marks of approval in order that it might be held among us in highest honor and esteem, even as the most excellent of all things. Not the person, but the ministry. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation who says to Zion, to the church, our God reigns. There's nothing more glorious for any church than the ministry of the gospel. And gospel ministers are stewards of this ministry, ministers of Christ in public, from the pulpit, 
Paul also ministered in private from house to house. So for these reasons, you see God, according to Paul, using human agents. So why does God use men? Calvin said he shows his love for us. It's for the unity of the body and it's for the glory of God that he sends his ambassadors into the world filled with the Spirit of God. Secondly, let's look at this appeal that he's given his ambassadors to make. It says in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. The message of ambassadors or the messengers is authoritative because it comes from the king. The king is the one who sent your ambassador. The king is the one who sends every ambassador. And the chief prophet, the leading messenger, is Christ himself, Hebrews 3.1. So ambassadors of the king speak as those sent by God. I learned this as well this week. It was something I did not know, but it's very sweet. The Greek words to preach and preacher literally refer to a king's herald. Someone, a slave of the king usually, whose job is to go out into the marketplace and scream out, Hear ye, hear ye. Thus says the king. It's an official of the royal court whose job is to declare the decrees and the announcements of the king. If you would turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 22, parable of the wedding feast, Matthew 22. Beginning in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his slaves to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, his slaves, and treated them shamefully and killed them, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those slaves went out into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests." The king sent his slaves to invite others to the wedding feast. These are ministers. These are his ambassadors, his prophets in the Old Testament. They're the king's men. They're the king's own possession. And they proclaimed the wedding feast and invited everyone to come. But they were rejected. Some were killed. Some were abused and resented. But Christ's ambassadors cannot be silent or cowardly. They must speak the king's word with courage and with love. But the authority of their message also cannot be abused. 
destruction will come upon all if this happens. We read in Second Chronicles 36 how the ministers, the prophets and the priests, they abused the word of God. The people were led astray and everyone suffered for it. And yet God's appeal still comes from ambassadors, from human agents, from men. He makes his appeal through men. And it's an appeal with authority. The third point, it's a glorious and fearful duty to have this duty as an ambassador because a minister is an ambassador to the king of the universe. I think it's so overwhelming to consider that if a a young man or an old man in seminary were told what the duties were and the weight of the responsibility that would fall upon that person, then no one would ever become a minister of the gospel. But God in his good providence, he lets you walk into it with a little bit of human confidence. And then he begins to break you and slowly break you and mold you into a usable tool, a usable vessel. It's a fearful duty as well. We see in Ezekiel chapter 3, where Ezekiel's told by God, if you don't do this, if you don't do what I tell you to do, you will pay the consequence yourself. You will be held accountable. He said, Son of man, this is verse 17 of chapter 3, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will will require at your hand. The principle holds true for all ministers of the gospel. That's why I'm never really rejoicing when I see uh, a false teacher who falls from grace. He's got a big church. He's, he's done uh, gr- great things from the world's perspective and, and growing some massive ministry. And then he's not of God or, or something happens and he falls. And my heart is always grieved. It's a lose-lose. He will be held accountable for what he's done. But the church is also suffering greatly. So what gives us hope and courage? Well, we talked about Paul's message in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. We have courage because of the king and his character. The king has commissioned his people to preach his word. And because of his love controlling us, because of the good shepherd who leads us, the under shepherds can feel confidence in doing their work. And any hardship or suffering... Remember, Paul said he was crushed and persecuted and struck down, but not destroyed and perplexed. This is all, all these losses, all these crosses are light and momentary troubles compared to the surpassing greatness of the eternity with our Lord. So what is it exactly that we are declaring on behalf of the King as gospel ministers? Let's conclude with verse 20 in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. As ambassadors to Christ, God is making his ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. 
I'm speaking on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That's the message. Trust in Jesus Christ. He came and lived a perfect life. He was crucified, dead and buried. And he rose on the third day so that all who have faith in him might live eternally, not facing the wrath that's due to them. And on behalf of Christ, every minister implores you, be reconciled to God. He says, working together with him, with Jesus, the minister working together with Jesus then appeals to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, don't hear the message of the gospel and do nothing about it. Don't just hear it with your ears, but receive it in your soul, in your heart. There's great joy. If you remember um, in the book of Revelation, and I believe also in Ezekiel, um, God commands the prophet to eat the scroll. And I believe John, it was sweet in his mouth, but it was bitter in his stomach. And um, we learned in our study of Revelation, uh, Dr. Godfrey said that that probably symbolizes the sweetness of ministry but also the bitterness of ministry when you see people hear the word and reject it. Hear the word and go on living just for themselves. They hear the good news of Jesus Christ and they leave it behind and follow their own way. But it's sweet in that you see also God, the Holy Spirit, changing lives. So I implore you, I appeal to you, be reconciled to God. And look how Paul preaches in verse 2. In a favorable time I listened to you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If there's any question in your mind, if you're God's child, settle it today. Go home, get on your knees behind your own closed door and ask Jesus to change your life. Believe in Him, to trust Him for the very first time maybe. Now is the time. Now is the day. Why does Paul say that? Because you don't know what the future holds. You could be gone tomorrow. If there's anything you've, you've learned over the past one or two years is that life is not a given. People fall over dead all the time. You see it in every paper almost every day. Every newscast. It's a very sad thing, but it also is a, a thing that would inspire us to change now, to turn to God now, to ask the Holy Spirit to enliven our souls, to love Christ now, to trust in Jesus now. Today is the day of your salvation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. You've given us your word. You've given us ambassadors. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Truly, we have everything we need for life and godliness. We pray that you would change each one, that we would be renewed every day. That would be changed from one degree of glory to another and that we would see 
the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we would love him. Lord, we need you. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and sing our hymn of response. It's number 284, 284.